wicked king Manasseh rises to contrast all the righteousness of his father before a new king arises to honor Hezekiah's legacy on The Bible Brief. Have you left a five-star review on your podcast player? Help us stand out to potential listeners and quickly post a review of The Bible Brief today. Thank you for helping others learn the life-changing story and message of the Bible. Since the United Kingdom split in approximately 932 BC, things haven't gone well in either of the two smaller kingdoms. Starting with Jeroboam, the kingdom of Israel in the north began a swift turn away from God. And through the next two centuries, through the dynasties of Basha, then Amri, then Jehu, there was little desire to turn back to the God of their fathers. Instead, rebellion became a fixture of the north a fixture until the Assyrian Empire finally took that kingdom and sent its people into exile. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated. In the south, things had gone better, but not much better. There was certainly a rebellious trend in Judah, but it was a slower trend with lots of turns toward God along the way. Jehoshaphat had had a notable turn toward God. And several generations later, we saw Hezekiah bring worship back to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover with the people of Israel once again. Yet through the prophets, including Isaiah, we saw that there was great difficulty coming on the horizon. Despite a few righteous turns along the way, Judah was headed toward disaster. Not at the hand of Assyria, but at the hand of their rival to the south. Babylon would eventually come to defeat Judah. Jerusalem, God's city and the city of the Davidic kingship would be decimated by an ancient enemy of God. But there was still time for Judah. Perhaps God might even have mercy on them. Perhaps he would give more life to the kingdom just like he'd given more life to Hezekiah. Maybe with a continued righteous renaissance, he would relent from his judgment. But with the final death of Hezekiah, his 12-year-old son rises to the throne an opportunity for continuing a God-honoring kingship that's quickly squandered. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab the king of Israel had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Manasseh, it turns out, is not like his father. He doesn't just do evil like Ahab had done in the north, but he does even worse evil than the Canaanites themselves who occupied the land before Israel came in to conquer them. He builds altars to Baal. He builds an Asherah pole and places it in the temple and he burns his son as an offering to a false god. 
In some ways, it's hard to imagine how such a good king like Hezekiah could have such a wicked son like Manasseh. Some apples, it seems, actually do end up falling a long way from the tree. Manasseh, this wicked son of Hezekiah, becomes emblematic of Judah's trend toward evil. And God sends the prophets to this wicked king, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Through these prophets, we hear more news of impending judgment for Jerusalem and for Judah. Notably, however, we see that this judgment isn't just for Manasseh's actions. It's for all the evil that had been done since the Israelites came up out of Egypt. God is judging his people for all their evil for the last 700 years of their history. A judgment made in the midst of further evil here with Manasseh's reign. Yet Manasseh, for all his evil, does have a turn back toward God later in his reign. But just as the judgment is not merely for the evil he perpetrated— so his repentance doesn't forestall the now apparently inevitable defeat of the nation. Manasseh dies in a better state than his beginning years, but his legacy is largely that of his immense evil in his early years. When his grandson comes to reign, however, we see perhaps who Manasseh should have been after Hezekiah. Josiah soon rises, the greatest king since his grandfather Hezekiah, and perhaps the greatest king since David himself. We read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty-one years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them, and scattered it over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of the tribes of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Josiah begins his reign at eight years old, and instead of repeating the errors of prior kings, he walks in the ways of David, doing what is right in the eyes of Yahweh. Soon he begins a great purge of the land, destroying high places, idols, asherim, bales, altars, and all the items of false worship that he can find. But perhaps more than that, he finally, 
finally destroys the false worship center at Bethel that that first king of the northern kingdom had set up. Remember, Jeroboam had placed a golden calf at Bethel. He had set up his false priests, and he'd set up his false feast. Josiah finally exacted God's vengeance upon the place. Now, if you remember, this was prophesied around 200 years before by a prophet of the Lord. He had said that a man named Josiah would arise to destroy the place and burn the priests on the altars of false worship. Josiah did just that, burning the bones of the priests upon the altar of falsity. Josiah's reforms weren't done, however, because something happens that makes his religious fervor even more contrite and more resolved. One day in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, a priest who's helping clean up and restore the temple complex finds of all things the book of the law, the writings of Moses describing the law that God had given the people of Israel, a discovery that sent the king into mourning. Apparently, worship of Yahweh had fallen so far out of favor with the prior two kings, especially with Manasseh, that most of the copies of the law were destroyed. It seems that someone had hidden one away in the temple, hoping that some future generation would rediscover true worship of the true God. Josiah turned out to be the king of such a generation. Josiah mourns for the fact that the nation has been so unfaithful and resolves to turn them back to the Lord. So we read this, starting in verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord, and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart and all His soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then He made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin to join it. Josiah is doing his best to restore what the nation had lost, and he doesn't stop at making a covenant to do all that the law required. He keeps the Passover, just like his grandfather Hezekiah before him had done. Even in this, however, Josiah goes the extra mile. For the sacrifices of the day, Josiah himself contributes over 30,000 animals from his flocks, and the people, the priests and the Levites, follow all the prescriptions in the Law of Moses for the feast, and for its sister feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Concerning this event, we read this. So all the service of the Lord was prepared that day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah, and the priests and the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Josiah even outdid David in keeping the Passover. You can imagine that this may have caused some people to begin whispering among themselves. Could this be the one to reign on David's throne forever? Could perhaps Josiah be the Messiah they'd been waiting for? 
Sure, there's a lot left to fulfill, but he's still a young man. Perhaps he's the one. Sadly for Josiah, and for the kingdom, this didn't end up being the case. Despite all his God-honoring endeavors, what he ends up doing is standing in the breach of a zeitgeist that he cannot stand against. God has announced judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah, and judgment is coming before the Messiah arises. Josiah dies at the young age of 39, getting involved in a regional war that will shift the global balance of power. Little Judah is caught in a movement of empires, and Josiah, trying to get involved, dies in the plain of Megiddo to Egyptian forces moving north. These forces of Egypt are moving north to a battle that will be the end of a great empire and the rise of a new one. Assyria is about to give way to a new power, a power who takes those children of Abraham and Judah and brings them back to the land of Chaldea, back to the home of Abraham. Abraham had come up from Ur of the Chaldeans upon the call of God, and his nation would return in chains. Join us next time as a prophet of God announces impending judgment, but also gives the nation the greatest taste yet of its future hope. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023